Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast, a podcast about theology, culture, and discipleship. And this is episode 124. In this episode, we're talking about trauma studies in the Gospel of John with Dr. Corey Marsh. Dr. Corey Marsh is professor of New Testament at Southern California Seminary and the director of SCS Press. He's recently completed a PhD entitled, In This World You Have Affliction, A Johannine Theology of Christian Suffering, which he completed at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. And he has a forthcoming article coming out entitled, Moral Injury and the Suffering Basilicus of John 4, 46-54 in the Bulletin for Biblical Research. Team members on the episode from the two cities include Dr. Josh Carroll, Dr. Chris Porter, and myself, Dr. John Anthony Dunn. So this was a fantastic conversation with Dr. Marsh. Really appreciated hearing his articulation of trauma studies and to hear how he applies it to the Gospel of John to kind of bring out some of the scenes of suffering that maybe we don't uh, readily recognize as uh, particular particular instances of suffering and, and trauma. So I thought that was really fascinating. Josh and Chris, what were some of your takeaways from our conversation with Dr. Marsh? I love how Dr. Marsh differentiated mental distress and moral injury, especially how is he has he spoke towards moral injury and how that shows up in the Gospel of John and how it's to be read in the community, uh, especially our churches that are just suffering coming out of pandemic and coming out of uh, just a long-term exposure of fear and how that's kind of coming out everywhere else. So what he talked about and I think what he wrote about addresses that, and uh, especially as you walk through the narrative of John. Yeah, I, I really appreciated um, how uh, Corey brings uh, new models of and uh, new hermeneutics to the table, uh, especially ones which really give the text uh, even more life than it has, uh, and and really bring it uh, to the fore, and um, and especially that it gives us a, a great pastoral impetus uh, for reading the fourth gospel. Uh, it brings it back from being a, a spiritual gospel, which is less relevant to everyday life, to one that is actually. Uh, super relevant to uh, one that is actually uh, integrated and works with uh, the trauma and the the experiences uh, that people have. As always, you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, or you can visit us at our website at thetwocities.com. And if you'd like to leave us a, a rating and review, that would be fantastic. All right. And with that, here's our conversation with Dr. Corey Marsh. Well, Dr. Marsh, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here, John. I'm a big fan of uh, Two Cities Podcast. I'm a regular listener, so uh, it sure is great to see you guys in person. And I got to say, it sure is an honor to be on the podcast with my favorite Metal Monday scholar rock star. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad that uh, glad that you appreciate those. I, I haven't done them in a while, but I may I may bring them back from time to time. But we're we're uh, we're excited to talk with you about trauma studies and how that applies to biblical studies uh, as well as specifically the Gospel of John, which is where you've been focused on. Could you tell us a little bit as a kind of precursor to this conversation, what what is trauma studies and 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 who are some of the key figures in that in that discussion? Sure. You know, trauma studies is a it, it's still a burgeoning discipline, but it could probably be traced back to the early to mid 70s. Um, there was a distinct category being used uh, that wasn't, well, at least I should say there's a distinct category that was discovered 
um, that wasn't fitting directly under other type of traumatic experiences or studies such as PTSD. Uh, so with trauma studies, it, it did come out of the PTSD uh, post-traumatic stress disorder um, world, um, became its own distinct category, probably in the 1970s with a landmark study that was published by an Old Testament scholar named uh, Klaus Westermann. Uh, he had had an, uh, an article in interpretation. It was published in the mid-70s called The Role of Lament in the Theology of the Old Testament. And from then on, it just sort of snowballed into these ideas of how much we have lost the idea of lament, how much pain and suffering um, needs to be expressed in the human experience. And so that really kind of started off. He has a quote, and, and I have it here because it really started off this, this trauma studies in biblical studies, the cross uh, uh, interdisciplinary approach of it. Um, he had said that the lament is the language of suffering. In it, suffering is given the dignity of language. It will not stay silent. And that really grabbed onto a lot of biblical scholars to realize when we're reading the scriptures, there's a lot of pain and suffering in these characters that we've just looked at maybe too much uh, as literary props, if you will. Um, these were real historical people that, that, that share in the common bond of inner traumatic experiences. And so trauma studies started there in the 70s. It burgeoned into the 1990s, uh, specifically with a uh, VA um, psychologist named Jonathan Shea, who was interviewing uh, returning war vets from Vietnam and also into afterwards the Iraqi wars. Uh, but specifically with the returning Vietnam vets, there were things that were coming out in these interviews that were not being diagnosed correctly, types of suffering that weren't fear-based, um, where PTSD is more physiological, uh, what he termed trauma or trauma, uh, trauma studies, which then became moral injury, we'll talk about that in a little bit more, um, was more axiological, had to deal with the specifically feelings of shame and guilt and betrayal, not so much fear, but these other types of feelings that returning vets from from wartime experiences were were experiencing and they still do at a rapid rate um the suicide rate for return, uh, returning uh war veterans is just is astronomical it's, it's ludicrous it's uh it's very very troubling and a lot of that has to do with their specific inner trauma happening on the battlefield being betrayed specifically uh for example being betrayed by somebody they trusted or obeying a uh, uh, an immoral order perhaps Things that happen in war all the time. Well, if we kind of folk, uh, zoom past it a little bit more to more modern studies, an Old Testament professor at Point Loma uh, Nazarene, Brad Kelly, uh, wrote a book called uh, Bible and Moral Injury. And it was just, for me, it was my entry point into trauma hermeneutics now becoming a subset of this moral injury where moral uh, the uh, morals were being compromised um, through high tense situations. And so he had done a monograph specifically applying this new idea, which is really not new, but this idea of human trauma and experience in high tense situations to Old Testament characters, in particular Saul. And so what it did is really put on the sort of flesh flesh and bones of these literary characters that perhaps we've bypassed one way or the other or looked at too theologically or too literarily. Now it was look at the humanness of this suffering. Perhaps as Dr. Kelly put out in uh, how he, he talks about in this book, perhaps King Saul felt betrayed 
by the prophet Samuel. Perhaps he felt betrayed by Yahweh himself, which turned into this descent of madness uh, against David and other characters. Um, so what it really does is, is give a nice horizontal reading, uh, focusing on something we can all relate to, which is suffering, um, specifically inner mental trauma. Thanks, Corey. And I'm interested, so you've said you focus mainly on the fourth gospel in this, uh, and um, the, the, that space of, of trauma within the fourth gospel, it comes up time and time again. I mean, various characters in the fourth gospel are traumatized. The entirety of the community seems to be traumatized um, in, the, in the, the period after uh, the, the crucifixion, even after the resurrection, they're, they're still, John 21 records them as, as uh, still working from within their memories, if you, if you like, uh, that, that sort of locked in nature, that trauma brings uh, to us in, in the pursuit of memory and history. Uh, can you expand a bit more on, on your own approach to uh, trauma and, uh, and the fourth gospel? Sure. The fourth gospel is, for me, it's, it's my favorite you know, I'm not alone there. Uh, of the four Gospels, I just resonate so much with John. Um, I have a I have a colleague. In fact, uh, my boss here at Southern California Seminary, the provost, he's got he he likes to explain John different than the other gospel writers because John seems to be sort of the eclectic hippie of the group, if you will. You know, where you got where you got Luke giving these detailed genealogies, as does as Matthew. Then you get to John and it's more like he's on the bongos on the beach, you know, in the beginning was the word, you know, type of thing. You know, just it just really resonates on a different level. Uh, maybe for those of us that are more artistic, we could really resonate with that. Uh, the more I read John and really appreciated his different style, I saw things in these characters that I had never seen before. Um, things that perhaps I made too quick of a beeline to say Jesus' healings of a malady, as opposed to just slowing down and considering the real suffering that's happening with these characters. And you see this throughout the gospel. Um, for example, the royal official in John chapter 4, we're not given much information about him. There's only nine verses. Uh, it's an interesting character, sort of an enigmatic character, but this is the first healing, or as the words that John uses, signs, where Jesus heals somebody from afar, not even there. And so the story often gets preached or, or spoken of where this, this, this gentleman's son was dying and the focus is on that and Jesus healing that son. I started resonating with the father himself. I can only imagine being a parent in this situation, perhaps even blaming himself. Uh, this royal official, we don't know much about him. He's just called the, the Basilicus. I don't think he's the, the, the centurion in the synoptics, I think it's a different individual. We just don't know much about him. He could be a Gentile working under Jewish leadership. He could be Jewish working under uh, Gentile leadership, if you will. Um, there's this clash of worldviews, perhaps. Maybe he's blaming himself for his son's impending death. And you see the desperation of this man. And then when I'm reading the text, especially in the Greek, you're seeing things like the verbs that are being used, the imperfect tense of different you know, ways of speaking, where he's begging Jesus to help uh, his son. I think the man is blaming himself for his son's death. Real parental mental anguish that I just didn't you know, see before on a very surface reading the text. But I think John, the author of the fourth gospel, I believe that he embedded these things within the narrative where it's there all along. 
And so when you apply, say, trauma, uh, trauma hermeneutics or more um, way of interpreting scripture or reading the scripture with this horizontal understanding, hey, this is a real historical person that's really suffering, come to find out parents have suffered parental guilt throughout time. And there's been some interesting, um, I wrote something on this uh, that's being published in, in an upcoming um, uh, BBR issue. <clears throat> Anyways, where we, you can trace actual uh, funerary, ancient funerary inscriptions in Greco-Roman culture where parents were actually blaming themselves for their child's death. Uh, while there are those isolated cultures where children's death weren't as meaningful for others, the great majority of humanity, they mourned their children's death and blame themselves. And so I, I, I read these nine verses in John chapter four, it can really resonate with how this man must have been feeling. And it's interesting, there's no, there's no woman in the story. You know, uh, there's no mother, there's no, there's no sister being talked about. So perhaps this man is widowed or perhaps he's divorced, just adding to this inner trauma that he must be feeling of desperation. Um, and so that, that really started it for me was that particular scene in John four and this Royal official. And then when you just sort of tease out this idea of, of reading scripture, being very attentive to the human suffering, you see it throughout the fourth gospel. You, I mean, you can make a stop with the Samaritan woman and what she must be feeling in her trauma of being, you know, uh, isolated or, or mocked or looked at in certain ways that are no doubt playing on her psyche. Uh, the blind man in chapter nine. I mean, here's a guy who was who was thrown under the bus by his parents. Uh, see, you can, you can really resonate with the suffering, the mental suffering that must be happening with this blind man, where he's born blind. The only person all of Scripture who's not his eyesight isn't isn't restored. It's not healed. It's actually recreated by Jesus. And oftentimes, when we make a beeline right to that that miracle, bypassing this man's inner trauma, his parents threw him under the bus. Uh, he's born in darkness, he's given sight, and he's immediately shunned from the community, cast out of the synagogue, which in Jewish life was the entire society, right? Uh, how traumatic that must have felt for him internally. You see things as you move on, um, like Mary and Martha. You know, that's an interesting case in, in John 11, because you see these two sisters who just had a brother die. Now, the text doesn't say they were, they were specifically experiencing trauma over their brother's death, but how could they not be, correct? And later, you see that in their reaction when Jesus returning to Bethany. Had you been here, my brothers wouldn't have died. So you can, you can see on the, on the surface, even if you're really paying attention to it, that there must have been this real inner trauma of bereavement of these two sisters toward their brother. And perhaps they're feeling a little betrayed by Jesus. They expected him to just snap to it and heal his, uh, uh, their brother, but he let him die. And he shows up two or three days later, and they're kind of blown away by it. So applying, say, a moral injury, more of a, the subset of trauma hermeneutics to moral injury, that really resonates with clinical studies where these, these people in high tense situations often feel betrayed when they have a trusted leader who doesn't act what they think they should act accordingly. And that seems to be perhaps something that Mary and Martha were feeling. They were thinking Jesus was going to heal their brother. He didn't do it. And now they're feeling possibly betrayed. Um, if you just tease that out even more, the, the disciples, I, I recently uh, read a paper at a regional SBL Pacific Coast, and I focused on the disciples in the upper room in John 14 and si to 16. I mean, you really see it there in the text. They are bewildered that Jesus is leaving to go into the Father, and their, their minds are blown. 
right? Why are you going? Why can't we go with you, Peter says? And this is just repeated through the other disciples. And the imperfect verb, again, is being used, you know, this, this verb of speaking where they're almost just begging and just, just, just blown away um, that they can't follow their master. And this really resonates with modern, say, immigrant studies and even refugee studies where people have, say, a, a, they're backing a cause and a leader that turns out to be something that maybe wasn't all that it was cracked up to be. And now they're feeling ostracized. They're escaping the community. You can kind of see that sense of the disciples immediately with their reactions. They are panicking that their master is going to be leaving them, the very person that they trusted, and they can't follow him. So perhaps they're experiencing this mental trauma of betrayal. Um, and then all the way to the end of, of John chapter 21, John, you mentioned it earlier with, um, uh, excuse me, Chris, I think you mentioned it earlier with um, uh, Peter's prediction of his martyrdom that he's going to be in John 21. You know, there's this prediction that Jesus gives of Peter suffering. One day he's going to be stretched out and, and go where he doesn't want to go. And, and he's going to be crucified is what history tells us. And yet he's got this, I imagine Peter getting this prediction of future horrific suffering. He's got this cloud of impending doom over his, you know, over his head the rest of his, his adult life, not knowing when it was going to happen. He just knew it was going to happen when he's old. What that must have felt like as a man being told by your leader um, that you are going to die this horrific death. But John tells us it is to the glory of Christ. It's going to be to the glory of God. It's how he's going to glorify God in his death. Um, and so from pillar to post with that first scene in John 4 of suffering all the way to John 21, you see this sort of inclusio of suffering throughout the fourth gospel. And I think mental uh, moral injury and trauma hermeneutics helps us get deeper into that and see perhaps more of a um, the humanness of suffering and that these characters are not just literary props. Um, too often Christocentric and Christological readings make a beeline right to Christ and, and the healing or the miracle or the sign that's being done in the fourth gospel without slowing down to consider the real trauma and suffering. And uh, trauma hermeneutics helps us to do that, just to slow down and appreciate that there's some real human suffering and uh, that's been endured through God's people from ancient times on. And we can really resonate that, even resonate with that, no matter what culture we're in, what year we live in, we can read these stories and relate to this mental suffering uh, throughout the fourth gospel. Mm -hmm. I really like the uh, rundown that you just provided for us. And as I was thinking about the Mary and Martha example, of course, I was drawn to the fact that Jesus weeps in that scene. And I'm wondering if maybe you could address the the trauma that Jesus experienced in the Gospel of John, because I think it's quite striking, given that the Gospel of John doesn't really um, dwell on the excruciating nature of the crucifixion. It's the glorification of the crucifixion. And, you know, th those are the sorts of things that John focuses on. And even even John has language that seems to um, sort of uh, counter the, the cup of Gethsemane uh, tradition in some ways in the synoptics, where Jesus is like, of course I'm not going to let this cup pass from me or whatever. Um, I'm, I'm just curious if you could speak to the trauma of Jesus in, in the Gospel of John, especially given some of its, uh, especially given some of its peculiarities uh, relative to the synoptics in this regard. Yeah, that's an excellent observation, John. Uh, the trauma that Jesus does experience within John, it's presented a little bit differently, as you mentioned. So the synoptics are going to show Jesus more in his humility. Uh, the crucifixion is more of a low point, if you will, and the resurrection is the high point. 
John's different that way. For John, the, the torturous death and the suffering of Jesus is the high point. It is to the glory of God. In fact, in John 17, which is oftentimes called the, the, the high priestly prayer, Jesus is praying to the Father, and he's saying, Father, you know, he's, uh, the hour has come. Glorify your, let, glorify your name. Let the Son glorify your name. Reveal yourself to the world. And I'm paraphrasing here. But the idea being is that this is to the glory of God what's about to happen. Um, he says elsewhere in earlier parts of the fourth gospel that he's going to be lifted up and exalted, uh, a prefiguring this, this idea of what's going to happen on the cross. It's always presented in terms of victory and glory, not humility and, and um, you know, and desperation and wanting the cup to pass from him, as, as you mentioned. John's view of death with Jesus is very glorious, but it doesn't stop there. It actually pictures Jesus weeping. It pictures Jesus actually feeling this type of uh, mental trauma, if you will, over death. Um, he is certainly he's certainly experiencing that in the fourth gospel. And the fourth gospel is very honest to show that, which gives this this new sort of or a fresh way of relating to Jesus as not just the Son of God, but as a man, as a human being as well, who's experiencing these emotions. It's very interesting the suffering that happens in John. I, I like to call it the logic of Johannine suffering. Or perhaps maybe to use a John term, the logos of trauma, if you will. You know, Jesus' suffering is pictured in terms of glorification. And I think there's a lesson there subtly throughout the text that those who follow Christ should expect some suffering as well, um, which speaks so much against the modern, you know, Western, especially American evangelical idea of comfortability. You know, we excel in a theology of comfortability. Uh, we're horrible in maintaining and living out a, a theology of suffering. And John really does picture this starting with Christ, that because he suffered to the glory of God, those who follow him, just like Peter at the very end, when he says, follow me, you're going to be stretched out where you don't want to go. Those who follow him should expect suffering as well. Thanks for that, Corey. I, I think about preaching over the, over the centuries, right, and, and the humanization of the characters within the Gospels is the uniqueness of what you're doing with the hermeneutics the trauma hermeneutics is the uniqueness they're putting it in the in the psychological categories and the clinical categories and you talked about applying them to individuals and you talked about applying it to wider social contexts with the immigrants and things like that um yeah what's can you tease out the uniqueness a little bit more on the on what trauma hermeneutics is as opposed to like really good preaching yeah that's a good question. Um, I would start with, you know, the mid, probably to mid to late 20th century in Johannine readings really focused on narrative criticism, literary criticism, looking at the text more as a literary masterpiece and keeping historical ideas sort of at bay where other scholars beforehand were focusing on historical reconstructions of the gospel. Literary critics said, hey, let's just focus on the text as text and see what this tells us. And it was very helpful. However, it did tend to minimize the historical suffering, for example, in this conversation, that I think is there and other things that are historical. And so trauma hermeneutics, I think, really came out of the, at least applied to John, out of the literary criticism movement. Um, because now it's understanding the text as text, but also respecting the historical context of it and looking at these figures you know, not merely, not as mere literary props, but real historical people that must have been suffering. And so it, it, it got it sort of, it, it got it, uh, it came, you know, the trauma hermeneutics with John got wheels, if you will, 
with that idea. To your question, Josh, it, it's, it came out of, if you looked at moral injury, it really came out of the behavioral sciences, psychology, um, and not just with clinical uh, studies and, and research done within people that were suffering such trauma in high-stakes situations, but it also it transcends all these different approaches. So there was literary approaches that, was, that are now applying uh, moral injury and trauma. Uh, it came out of psychology, as I mentioned, economic uh, ways of reading the text, political ways of reading the text, any type of human suffering which transcends all these approaches can borrow from trauma hermeneutics, which helps it, which makes it so valuable in biblical studies. It's not, you know, it's not pigeonholed to one specific approach. You can, uh, you can approach uh, the text uh, from any angle without discarding the trauma that may be there in the text. I'm interested in with, with that, Corey. Um, one of the ways that uh, trauma is often, addressed or often worked with is in the in the basis of community uh, so communities come together as as community trauma uh, and therefore uh, in in situations such as earthquakes or bushfires etc you, you end up with uh, community-based groups who are doing a lot of the uh, restoration a lot of the working through of that trauma uh, similarly um, the prevalence of of group-based therapies for traumatic situations uh, often uh, that has turned out to be often quite helpful in uh, in our broader context, and and as uh, we've noted a lot recently, the pandemic has caused a a global trauma for us, uh, and and it even though people are dealing with that in in a variety of different ways, um, there there is still a nature of the, the corporality of of the response to the trauma. Uh, you mentioned uh, in passing earlier uh, the upper room discourse, and it, it strikes me that the um, in the with the upper room discourse we have an example of um, of the the corporate nature of coping with trauma, and also for that matter sitting with trauma. Um, uh, Shelley Rambo has has that great picture of the tritium, mm -hmm. uh, the Holy Saturday, which is sitting between uh, the the events of, of the crucifixion on, on the Friday and the resurrection on the Sunday. Mm -hmm. Um, I was wondering if you could uh, expand that out and um, and walk us through uh, how you how you see that working in the in the upper room. Yeah, um, you, you you guys just mentioned the pandemic, so let's start with something that's very relevant, and this uh, this idea of trauma within our 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 current context. I'm going to make my way back to the fourth gospel, but. Chris, you, you struck a, a memory in my mind. I, I I came across a study, an international study published in Nursing Ethics. Um, a SAGE journal, uh, interviewing medical professionals specifically with trauma and moral injury. And come to find out mental distress is a recognized category in the DSM. Um, mental moral injury is not. But mental distress, they're making a distinction. This study, the evidence shown, the, the distinction between these ideas that when someone is mentally distressed, it's individual and they experience burnout. Moral injury seems to be more in community and within systems and something be, perhaps beyond your control. You could feel one way it's referred to as guilt without fault. Another way that's very helpful where say traditional ways of theologically looking at certain sufferings and sometimes pastorally, unfortunately, it gets traced to sin. When come to find out not all suffering, not all trauma can be traced to sin directly. 
It is in a situation, someone being, you know, victimized or um, again, they can be betrayed or something like that. Well, in this study in nursing ethics, it showed that the nurses that were experiencing what they realized was moral injury, they were experiencing deaths through the pandemic, specifically with children beyond their control. None of their instruments were, none of their training was helping. None of their instruments were helping. And so they're taking on this collective guilt as nurses um, looking at not knowing what to do, feeling these uh, incredible shame and guilt for patients dying when it's out of their control. And from that came this idea, okay, moral injury is far more, it's, it's, it's more in depth, it's more damaging long term, it's a, an unseen wound on the co conscious, as Brad Kelly would put it, that's different than moral, mere moral distress. And so looking at that type of idea of moral injury being sort of outside of one's con direct control, um, systems are broken, um, things that are happening in high tense situations that you really can't control, but you're feeling guilty. Now we look at it with that angle back to the upper room discourse, and then we're going to see the disciples panicking. They're going to they're going to think, OK, just like these people, like, say, nurses with their doctors and and war vets with their superior commanders on the battlefield, they are going in with this idea of we are sticking to our leader to death. He's the Messiah. He's bring, ushering the kingdom of Israel and everything is all good. And now he just leaves them saying, you're no longer going to have my protection with you physically. I'm going and you can't go with me taking studies that have been done of moral injury and more clinical studies, specifically through the pandemic, they're now panicking in a situation they can't control, right? They're looking at a system that is radically broken and all their hopes now in this moment are being crushed, if you will. And so it's not that they're sinning at all. It's that it's now, it's highlighting, look, reading the text through this lens of trauma, it's highlighting the humanness of panic and even guilt and shame that could happen that is not directly tied to sin. And I think these modern studies have helped us to see that. This is a real human emotion uh, that needs to be respected a little more. Uh, myself, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a military veteran. I served in the United States Army, and it's very unfortunate, very sad that recently, the, the, I mentioned earlier the suicide rate of, of American vets. Um, it's just astronomical. It's horrific. I, I can't remember them off the top of my head, but it's something like almost unbelievable. Like, like 20, 20 formal soldiers are, are killing themselves daily over emotions they can't control. They're also being misdiagnosed. And that's, that's something that's just really, really concerning right now is that things that are traditionally considered PTSD are not fear-based. And so they're medicating certain people to treat fear when it's just a, gu a guilty conscious. And that guilty conscious doesn't necessitate that they did something wrong either. But they're feeling these things that are controlling all the, how they're thinking and acting in life. Um, and it's ending in suicide. And just recently, I was blown away by this, this uh, the VA, for all the good that the, the VA does, and they do a lot. I mean, my, my medical you know, care is through the VA, so I don't want to trash them or anything. But... And thankfully, they are they are attuned now to moral injury. There are some there are some centers that are opening up that are government sponsored, specifically dealing with mental trauma and moral injury. There needs to be more um, because of things like this. They are medicating certain vets with the drug called Molly on the street, um, which is really just ecstasy. And so they they don't know how to they don't know how to even treat some of these people that are experiencing clear moral injury symptoms. 
just sort of sweeping it under some type of PTSD ban, uh, umbrella and giving them drugs that are not helping. When I, when I look at the fourth gospel, all of this suffering, all of this trauma is led to lead, is meant to lead to that wonderful purpose statement in John 20, 31, that these things were written so that you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that you have life in his name. I mean, I'm thinking that's all of it, all, not just the signs or miracles in John's language of signs, but all the trauma as well, all the suffering that's been experienced by these real people are meant to lead you not to some other solution, but to Jesus himself, who is the solution. I preached uh, on Sunday on the upper, uh, on the, on John 20, 19, where mm. they're living in fear. They're, they're behind locked doors. They're living in fear. Uh, says the disciples, I think it's more of the community, but um, there's this aspect is that they're in fear of the Jews. They're all right there. They've heard these different um, reports from Mary that Jesus is risen. Peter's all messed up. He's like, I don't know what's going on. John may believe a little bit. We don't know that kind of thing. Um, and then Jesus speaks peace into that situation with his presence. What, how do you connect the things that are written that you just said that where it's all that purpose statement to the process of untangling those enmeshed emotions and guilt and shame and all the other, all the other junk that goes with it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think Josh and what you're saying, you probably resonate with John like I do where I look at it as I mentioned early started off with this more of the hippie of the gospels, but I also think it's more the most human, even as otherworldly as it may be starting with, you know, Jesus being the word. But when it gets into these actual individual characters that you don't see anywhere else in the new Testament, uh, these particular ideas of suffering behind every healing, if you will, that's done or every miracle, every sign of healing, they're suffering that, that precipitates it. Obviously it gives more flesh and bones to this, idea of being a disciple of Christ, that you should be expecting suffering. Um, I, I can't remember all, all, all of your question of, of, of the narratives of it. Um, however, I think that when we get to John 20, verse 30 and 31, oftentimes scholars will take the these things, that pronoun referring to just the signs. I'm going to take it as the entire narrative. Um, Mickey Klink does as well, and some others. There's some good scholarly support. I have a big lengthy footnote in my dissertation talking about this very thing. Because it is a case to be made. Is John referring to just the signs, or is he referring to also the suffering that happened before the signs? And I think it's all of it. Because if we look at John and the way that he pictures the crucifixion, it's in glory. It's not, it's not, um, it's not a low point. It actually, there's glory and suffering. So I believe that John is referring to all of the narratives of suffering as well, leading to that purpose statement. The entire this, that these things, I think it refers to the entire text, all of it is leading to Jesus as the only solution for our suffering. Oh, and this is what I was going to say. I, I, I went blank for a little bit, but for a second, one thing about moral injury, what I like about it, as opposed to moral distress or moral compromise or even PTSD or other types of trauma studies, moral injury doesn't leave you with just suffering. There's resilience at the end. There's recovery. Um, Warren Carter uh, did a wonderful, he's one of the few scholars who has done New Testament, applying moral injury to New Testament studies. And he, he talks about the, the scene of, of, uh, of Peter uh, denying Christ and that shame that he felt. And it's only in John that he's restored. He had felt shame to such an extent he needed a personal visitation from Jesus. So 
for the fourth gospel doesn't leave Peter with his trauma and suffering. It ends with him being restored and other modern moral injury stories. Like, so when I mentioned the fourth gospel in the, uh, the upper room discourse, they're in a community. Well, a lot of these moral injury studies that are being shown and ones that are writing on it, it's suffering within group studies. And there's resilience to be had in that. You're not left isolated as opposed to moral distress that leads to individual burnout. Moral injury is suffered with other brothers and sisters going through the same thing, but it leads to recovery. It's resilience that leads to recovery. And the fourth gospel speaks to this so beautifully because it leads, it's meant to lead everything to Jesus, who is the recovery, uh, the giver of life right there. And so uh, I think these studies really resonate a lot with the fourth gospel. And it is interesting that not too many scholars who have set apart the fourth gospel for a, uh, uh, for a reading through the lens of trauma. Um, but certain things are starting to come out with it, um, but there needs to be more for sure. Yeah. And I, I'm curious about the idea that there's suffering that um, precipitates the signs in the gospel of John. And I'm thinking especially of the first one, uh, the wedding at Cana and the abundance of wine there. Um, I think, um, I think we might not readily imagine the kind of distress that uh, those at the wedding would feel after they've already consumed enough wine such so that they've run out. I'm curious if you could speak to um, the nature of that particular sign and, and how it fits into this paradigm. Yeah, that's a good question. And I'm sure there are there are others that, are, that would have a way better answer <laughs> than me, because when I read the fourth gospel, I don't see the individual suffering of trauma happening so much until chapter four with the, with the royal official. But that first sign is there. Um, some could say, and I don't want to be too definitive about this, but uh, but the mother of Jesus, she's never named, um, but let's just assume that's Mary approaching Jesus uh, to, you know, talking, you know, explaining the, the crisis of will at this Jewish wedding that the wine has run out. And he's like, woman, what do you have? What does that have to do with me? Some could make this case that she is now feeling betrayed by her son, or uh, perhaps she approached him in the wrong way and she's feeling shame for doing that, something like that. And there, and that might be something to run with. Maybe someone will write a dissertation on just that particular scene. Um, so I couldn't speak too much definitively on that scene, because that's the one sign that is set apart from all the suffering you see moving forward. I would start the suffering trauma with the royal official in John 4 on. Just what, what about the, the honor and shame aspect of what's going on with the sure. guy that's supposed to be providing the wine, not, not having enough and facing the social ramifications from that? Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I, there could be something for sure said to that. Um, this is an honor-shame culture that we're reading in the first century. Uh, that could be, see, the way that John, and this is where literary trauma study, literary, literary trauma study, or I should say literary studies, applying trauma as a hermeneutic helps that there could be certain suffering encoded in the language itself. And it's meant to, to really have the reader resonate with the suffering too. So you're not just reading about suffering, you're becoming traumatized by reading it as well. Um, and that could be something that could be, say, on, it's not so much on a surface re reading of the text in John chapter two, but those resonating in those living in cultures that still adopt such a, an honor shame uh, ethic would be able to relate to say more than a Western idea, which, you know, we're certainly not so much honor and shame or other types of, <laughs> of ethics when we're, what we're used to, what we're accustomed to. But one thing that makes John so just so primed uh, for the pump of this type of study 
is that he embeds things in his language and his use of verbs and his syntax that the other gospel writers don't. And I think that is meant to, to sort of draw the reader, him or herself, into the, into the text as well. For example, John is very well known for his, you know, his way of, sty- uh, his way of, of using the, what's called the historical present verb. You know, these present active indicative third person singular speaking verbs. It's like you're there in the scene with him. And so when the disciples are feeling trauma, the reader is meant to feel it too, perhaps. When Mary and Martha are feeling trauma over their, not just the bereavement of their brother, but perhaps a feeling a little betrayed by Jesus, not healing him, you know, immediately, the reader is meant to, to feel this as well. Uh, the reader perhaps is meant to feel the panic that the disciples feel when, when he's about to leave to go to the Father. Now, the reader should feel, wow, what, what would life be like without Jesus in our midst type of thing? And all of that leading again to that purpose statement that these were all written so that you believe that, that Christ is the, is the Son of God and you have life in his name. So I, I think the language of John is very, very, is very unique. That's no surprise there. But specifically, it's valuable um, it's just so, it's just, it's, it's just, like I said, it's primed for a traumatic study and specifically moral injury by these readings. I think it really brings out the, the fleshiness, if you will, of John's gospel. I, I wonder for the, the wedding at Cana, um, we've had this in, in the, from the prologue right through to uh, the clearing of the temple. We get a potted history, or at least I argue we get a potted history of Israel. Um, you know, you have from the, in the beginning, uh, and then right through to the calling of the 12, um, here is a man in whom there is no deceit, Israel specifically, it recasts, uh, um, it recasts Nathaniel as Israel, um, Mm -hmm. specifically, uh, and then it's bookended by, uh, the clearing of the temple, which is fronted in the fourth gospel, as opposed to all the synoptics, um, but the the wedding at Cana is that is that oddity. What's it doing in the middle of there? Why is it then called a sign? Um, the, I mean, our, our, the majority of the um, of the restoration imagery from exile uh, in in the prophets is that of a banquet and of of a, of, a, of the of a feast of which there is no e- there is no end to the food and wine. Um, and and I wonder for the um, for for the readers of the fourth gospel whether whether or not the the destruction of the temple um, ends up being that uh, trauma that precipitates them reading the uh, the, the the banquet or, or the the wedding imagery as a uh, as a as the traumatic event of seventy uh, just mm. as they would with the um, the clearing of the temple. Mm. Um, mm. So that's just a, that was an aside that just for, we can talk about that later uh, next week or something. <laughs> yeah. Chris, your aside just has my mind spinning on like six other asides right now. <laughs> like, <laughs> like these inclusios that are found in John, like yeah, it starts yeah. at the wedding in Cana. And then it's when you get to that, that Royal official in Cana, there is this, what my, my mentor, Andreas Kostenberger would call the Cana cycle. You know, there's this inclusio from Cana to Cana. What do we do with this group of text right here? Um, and in that is that clearing of the temple. Um, what that sign might mean. That's the first sign right there. 
Um, I, I don't know because I look at these when I say it spins off these other signs. I, I look uh, other sides. I look at not so much. I, I think those those cycles are there. Those festival cycles, the Cana cycle, as, as Dr. Kostenberg would put it, um, that John uses these inclusios throughout the the text. I see an inclusio of suffering um, that isn't so much talked about. In fact, uh, nobody, as I know of, it's one of those things that you got sort of go on a ledge with, with your own doctoral work. And, and I did it with mine. So, um, you know, maybe that's a reason why it's not published yet. <laughs> but uh, I look at these inclusios of suffering where you see from John chapter four um, up until the upper room discourse, these are sufferings experienced. You know, the, the royal official, the, the women of Samarit, uh, Samaria, if you will, um, the the disciples, what they're being, oh, uh, Mary and Martha. And then from the upper room discourse on, I look at that as a, a sort of an inclusion of suffering promised. Now they're told in John 15, you are going to suffer for my namesake. And of course, Peter is prophesied. Jesus predicts Peter, Peter's death of suffering, John 21. So these two major inclusios, if you will, bracketed by this theme of suffering and trauma, um, I think is I think is intentional. I think it's there in the text. Again, meant to read lead readers to trust in Christ. He's the ultimate solution for all of all of this mess that we're in, if you will. Um, but the text really resonates with the suffering with us, or we can resonate with the text as well. It's it's it's, it's a great two way conversation. The reader and the and the text of fourth gospel are meant to feel these things and really resonate with the suffering that God's people has endured for ages. Hey, man, this is great. Thank you so much for everything you've been talking to us about today. Um, I'm really interested in how trauma studies inform our reading of John in community, especially in a church community where we're coming out of this global pandemic, where uh, fear and anxiety and all those kind of things have been stuffed down and now they're creeping back up in, in weird ways. How does reading John help us uh, through that? I love that, Josh. I, I love that question because it, it takes it back to Christian community, a pastoral implication, if you will. The fourth gospel, I think, uh, it, it really, it, reading it in community, um, not isolated in one study, which has its place, but actually within a church fellowship, if you will, um, sort of brings life to this gospel. Um, because what you see in the fourth gospel, there, there's never one disciple apart from another. Um, until the very end, when there's this conversation between Jesus and Peter, and he's Jesus is predicting G uh, Peter's uh, future death, and Peter turns around and says, "What about this man?" You know, and I think that's the author of the gospel right there. What's he gonna, is is what about him? And Jesus says, "If if he remain if he remains until I come again, what is that to you? Follow me." Uh, but even there, he's an earshot of that conversation. Um, and there's that, I, there's, there's, there's the scene of Jesus, you know, talking with Peter and restoring him to ministry, of course, but it's also from the disciples coming back on the beach being there. So there's this idea constantly of, of being within group settings and specifically in the uproom discourse, I think a collective reading, a church reading, a community reading really brings out what's happening in the text because the group itself is experiencing this collective trauma together. Um, again, with moral injury studies, it's not meant to lead to any type of despair or depression. There's resilience and strength even at the end, especially within community, as it was with the disciples. They were then promised their, their death, if you will, in John 15 by Jesus, that you will suffer uh, for my namesake. But he didn't give that to one individual. He gave that to the group as a whole. 
And even what started that, the uproom discourse in, in, in John 13, Jesus, uh, John uses the singular word cardia for heart. He said, do not let your heart be troubled. And he's talking to the whole group. There's this idea that we all as believers share the heart, share the heart of God, if you will. And that we're in this thing called life together, which includes even its suffering and trauma. And so, so Josh, I really appreciate that question because I, I think uh, the fourth gospel itself really takes on this incredible, um, just encouraging uh, ministering tool, if you will, uh, by reading it in community, in discipleship, uh, being preached at, as you mentioned, even at church and, and having those in your congregation respond to it. It's perhaps, I don't want to go say it's better than any other books in the Bible, but it maybe it resonates a little bit more with a community reading. Well, I think that's a a great place for us to close out this wonderful conversation. Thank you so much, Dr. Marsh, for joining us. Uh, This has been my pleasure. I appreciate the conversation. Thank you, guys. 